and welcome to ANO's fourth podcast in our series on virtual hearings. My name is Anna Massa. I head ANO's arbitration practice in Germany. In the previous three episodes, we covered first how virtual hearings are shaping the present and the future, second, whether these virtual hearings are here to stay, and third, we've gotten an expert's view on hearings in a virtual setting. In this fourth episode, we're going to focus on psychological aspects, in particular with regard to witness testimony and how virtual settings might have an impact. To address this topic, I have the personal and professional pleasure to talk to Dr. Ulla Cartwright-Finch. So welcome, Ulla. Hey there. It's lovely to be speaking with you today. Thanks for being here. Maybe before diving into the issues, Ulla, a bit of background on yourself. I've obviously read your CV. I've seen you've been in big law for about 11 years, first with HFS and then with Linklaters before founding your own firm and now you're managing director at Cortex Capital. Maybe for the virtue and the pleasure of our listeners, why did you leave big law and what are you doing now as a managing director at Cortex Capital? Yeah, so there have been a few plot twists, I guess, in my career, as you've mentioned. So I actually started studying psychology. So I, I majored in neuroscience in my undergraduate, and then I went on to complete a PhD in cognitive psychology before I switched tracks into big law. So now I've really come full circle and come back to where I started. So my consultancy aims to combine those two fields and applying relevant areas of psychology and neuroscience to improve the practice of law. So what I do day to day is a combination really of original research, working with scientists, education for lawyers and in-house counsel, and also bits of consultancy or on specific projects. And a couple of the key areas I've been looking at are fact witness memory in, in civil disputes, and also the psychological factors in virtual hearings. This is so fascinating. So you're kind of back on track to where you came from exactly. with a round tour in law and how you practice. So it's amazing to have you, Ulla. In your capacity as managing director of Cortex Capital, you and your colleague Kimberly Wade were deeply involved in the recently launched ICC Commission report on the accuracy of fact witness memory in international arbitration. I did watch the launch event where you presented. So there's essentially two appendices to the ICC Commission report, and you were involved in both of them. Maybe for the first one, it's a kind of a summary, if I understand correctly, it's a summary of scholarly writing on witness testimony. What were your main findings? So that review, Appendix One of that report, was really drawing together the most relevant experimental studies from the research in the field of memory and law, which is itself quite enormous, and specifically wanted to highlight the different ways that witnesses' recollection can be altered or edited by information they receive after an event. So, for example, we know that even very small changes in the way that you ask a question can influence what a person says to you. So if you ask a witness, how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other, then they'll give you a faster speed estimate than if you ask them how fast were the cars going when they collided, for example. And there are also lots of other studies showing that memories for facts or even entire episodes can be distorted or corrupted by misleading information or doctored information that they're given afterwards. And that's called the misinformation effect. And it happens very, very easily and below our conscious awareness. And actually that misinformation effect can extend far beyond remembering a particular detail about an event like the speed of a car or the presence of an object. Actually, the studies have shown that you can implant 
a memory of an entire episode that didn't actually happen by, for example, asking somebody repeatedly about a particular event over the course of a number of interviews. And eventually some people take that memory on board and even come to sort of embellish it with their own details. And that's what the literature refers to as false memories. So I guess in summary, our memories of events aren't fixed. It's not like a video recorder. That's not how our memory operates. But rather, they're very malleable and they can be changed by things that we hear afterwards, including, importantly for lawyers, the way you phrase a question, what somebody sees after an event, the way that witnesses talk to one another as well. I think that's fascinating, both from a counsel as well as from an arbitrator's perspective. The other questions I remember from the appendix is whether you ask how tall was a basketball player or how short was a basketball player, with everybody seeing the same basketball player led to 25 centimeters in difference. And I think that is both important from a counsel's perspective, preparing for cross-examination, and how far do I phrase questions, should I, should I not phrase questions in a specific manner, and as tribunal member being aware of what an impact these questions have on the answers that the witnesses give is just scary in a way, I think. Exactly. I mean, they really do produce significant effects. And that study that you just mentioned, I think the size of the height estimates was really quite significant. So I think it is really important to really educate lawyers, arbitrators, judges on these sorts of effects, because they're not really covered in legal syllabi <laughs> at the moment. I mean, from a counsel's perspective, I even think it's an ethical question, no? Should I actually make use of the knowledge that I can direct the witnesses in a certain manner just by asking another example from the appendix is whether you ask, do you remember the smashed headlight or do you remember a broken headlight is going to produce different answers just by substituting the the for an A. Yeah, exactly. And I think where I come down on this is always that as lawyers, we're bound by professional obligations and ethical obligations. And once you're aware of these effects and these memory biases that you can produce, it's really incumbent on the lawyers to operate in a way that is in line with the ethical obligations and not to deliberately push, I guess, a witness or suggest a particular thing if you think that that is likely to have an effect based on what the science says. And based on what the science says, what what do we do with witness preparation, actually? At least in commercial arbitrations, we're used to going through the questions, preparing the witnesses for potential cross-examination questions. How does that actually alter the witness's perception of what happened? I mean, that's really a significant part of the report. And I think it's section five of the ICC report deals with or sets out rather a number of measures that council can take as they're going through the different phases of an arbitration, specifically to reduce the effect of these of memory biases. So there are very specific things we can do. And I definitely direct people to look at the report for that very comprehensive summary. I can only second that everybody who's working in arbitration should look at this, I think, very fascinating and important report. Maybe turning to the second appendix to that report. So what you did was an empirical study. So you got many people looking at a hypothetical scenario and you gave them specific documents and they looked at it and they had some time to reflect upon it. And then they were asked to remember as honestly as possible what happened and The setting was that you asked some of the people, well, you imagine you're a managing director of the claimant and you imagine you're an employee of the respondent and you had a control group which wasn't told anything. And if I understand the findings correctly, even just imagining being on one or the other side 
And then still being told you should answer as honestly as possible biases your answers to the one side. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. It is a brilliant study. I really love this one. So I worked with Kim on the team and on designing it. And we're actually writing the results up at the moment. And those results, both the biased retelling effect and the effect of the misinformation, really replicate what has been found elsewhere in previous studies, usually in a criminal context. So in that sense, the results were as we predicted and not a huge surprise, at least to us, based on the previous research. But what was really helpful for a number of reasons was that we found the same pattern of effects, the same impacts on memory that researchers have found in the criminal sphere but this time in the civil domain. And actually, there isn't really any reason to suspect our memory of evidence in civil disputes should operate differently, because we're talking about quite a fundamental cognitive process. But there was quite a healthy degree, I think, of scepticism among some task force members about how relevant these really are in arbitration. So the study, I think, was particularly helpful for highlighting that they do happen. And also, it's really the first time scientists have tried to measure those effects in a commercial setting, using a contractual dispute, a witness who's an employee of the company, rather than eyewitness testimony of a neutral observer watching a car crash, for example. And we also used business people rather than just students. So there are a number of reasons why I think the study is very helpful in showing a number of different effects in the civil domain and highlighting this really surprising effect, I think, of biased retelling. I was surprised because it makes you look at witness testimony in another way after reading those appendices, because you have to factor in whatever you hear, where the person is coming from, what the person has seen after the event, what information he or she was supplied with after the event. Just looking at what she or he is saying is not sufficient. You kind of have to factor that in, apparently. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the measures that the report suggests is when you are speaking to a witness, at the beginning, you spend some time finding out what sources of information they have been exposed to, who they have spoken to, what documents they've seen, what conversations have they had, what interviews have they had already, because then you can better weigh up the likely accuracy or potential sources of contamination. This is true in whatever setting we're looking at now. I mean, this is true in real life. Does that change in a virtual setting from your perspective? And, and if so, how? So the thoughts of memory effects and memory biases that we've just been talking about would happen in exactly the same way in a virtual setting. You know, if you're interviewing a witness over Zoom, for example, the same cognitive functions are happening when we're speaking to people. So, yeah, no reason to suspect the memory effects would differ. And you're also looking, if I understand correctly, at honesty, dishonesty of witnesses with your same colleague, Kim Wade, no, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, that line of research actually is one that I'm looking at on my own at the moment. And it's part of a series of papers that I'm writing called Justice Rebooted, looking at lots of different psychological angles relating to virtual hearings. And witness behaviour, particularly whether or not they're going to cheat or be coached, is definitely one of the juiciest topics I think I've covered in that series so far. And it's also one of the key concerns, I think, that arbitration practitioners were talking about when virtual hearings first came up. You know, are people going to be coached off camera? There were big concerns about that. I think luckily for us, for the lawyers, social scientists have for some years now been studying the situational and sort of social factors that make us more or less likely to engage in dishonest behaviour, like cheating on a witness stand. 
So my research kind of analyzes those factors and considers which are likely to apply in the virtual setting. And most importantly, how can we change procedures to reduce the chances of cheating on the virtual stand? So and in summary, you, your findings are on that issue? <laughs> yeah, so it, I mean, it's a very big topic, difficult to summarize yeah. if you, in, a few, in a sentence. But as an example, scientific studies have shown that people are more likely to cheat when they feel a greater psychological distance between the act and the outcome of their dishonesty. So we're more likely to cheat on a test if we're rewarded with tokens that we later exchange for cash than if we're rewarded immediately with cash, perhaps because we find it easier to rationalise our behaviour in that setting and we feel less conflicted about it. So I think applying that to virtual hearings, perhaps a witness may feel more removed from a case. They're not in the physical hearing. They're not in front of three arbitrators. They might find it easier to justify, to rationalise to themselves. Well, you know, maybe I'll just have my notes up on the screen. I don't feel like that's cheating because... It's just reminding me what I knew already, whereas actually that's breaking the rules in many proceedings. All of this has come about so quickly and the science just hasn't caught up yet. So this is definitely one of the areas where I think scientific research will be done quite urgently to answer these questions. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I think we've all been just thrown into this about a year ago now, and we've been kind of trying to struggle our way through, but we're getting better and better at it. And I think these studies only help. In the rebooting justice series, what else are you covering? So there's a whole range, really. I start off talking about the environment itself, the virtual hearing environment. So the cognitive load factor, the fact that we were kind of squeezing the whole universe of a hearing room onto one screen and how that's quite difficult for our cognitive processing abilities. So we have limited capacity to process information and looking at a screen that's very busy, that has lots of what we call visual clutter, makes it then harder for us to process not just what's going on on the screen, but what we're actually hearing. So impacts of the environment on a decision maker's ability to process information, for example. Similarly, the challenges that advocates face, those sorts of things. And what are the main challenges for advocates in your view? So I think there are quite a number. It's quite difficult to choose just one. I think I would caveat my response in a truly loyally way by saying that it's also going to depend on factors like the complexity of the dispute, the arbitrators or judges, what time zone they're in, the advocate's level of empathic capacity, you know, how much time they spend trying to read the tribunal and read the room, those things will vary and will impact on what the particular challenge is. But I think considering the issue very broadly, I think one of the biggest challenges for advocates is that they have to adapt their usual personal style of advocacy to quite a significant degree, I think, to suit the psychological profile of the online environment. So talking about the cognitive load factor, what advocates are going to have to face is that it's harder to deliver the message because the arbitrators have an already quite full mind dealing with scrolling through documents, worrying about the connection, all these sorts of things. There's also a whole lot less human data or social intelligence available in the form of body language or non-verbal cues that we can't easily give to the tribunal or judge to amplify our submissions. And so I think it's thinking about the steps that advocates can take to overcome those limitations to make sure their message is going to be communicated and heard. 
Very interesting. Maybe as a final question, if we have the time, is we've heard in other interviews that the virtual setting should have or could have some impact on diversity and inclusion issues. Do you have a view on that issue, whether and to what extent the virtual surrounding might actually be beneficial for these issues? I haven't landed on an answer on this one yet. It's one of those questions which has so many different factors feeding into it. It's going to depend on the type of diversity that you're talking about and the particular situation. So I think it's difficult to say it will help or it won't help. The context will definitely depend. But there are definitely points where the impressions are slightly different online. For example, I'm quite, obviously, a woman, I'm quite short and quite small. So standing next to, you know, a large man, the differential impact of two advocates who have a physical difference like that might be immediately quite different on the arbitrators and the decision makers. Obviously, on an online setting, no one knows how tall I am or any of those things. There's far less visual markers in that way that might raise or trigger certain biases. But then on the other hand, there are lots of other ways it might play out differently. That was just one humorous example that I think about. Interesting. I think we should follow up on this in about a year once your studies are finalized and then we can see what the outcome is on these issues and others. Absolutely. I'll be delighted. Thank you very much for being with us, Ula. It was a pleasure, as indicated in the beginning. Also from a personal perspective, because we've been following each other for a while. So I've been lucky to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you.